in verse 12 of chapter 1, and it runs all the way through the conclusion of chapter 12. Uh, It's a lengthier section or pericope here in Corinthians than uh, we are used to maybe with Paul that way. Uh, And it all surrounds a complexity uh, that that, that can be somewhat difficult for us to understand because of the circumstances and what's going on there. Uh, and so we're actually going to spend three Sundays in this whole section, at least, maybe, maybe four. I don't really make promises that way. Uh, but certainly at least three so that we can really understand what's going on here. Uh, and so I'm going to read the text in just a moment. And I'm going to actually just read down through verse 4 of chapter 2. That's where we'll be at today from uh, verse 12 of chapter 1 down through verse 4 of chapter 2. Just to start get wrapping our minds around it. And uh, then I'll, we'll, we'll start digging in and... I'll give you some of the layout, some of the outline, and then we'll look to see what the Lord has for us this morning. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, this really begins the body of the letter. Paul's now done his introduction. He's going to start getting into the meat of the issues that he's got to deal with with this church in Corinth. He writes this, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. We're not writing to you anything other than what you, what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. But in him, it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but... We work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. You can't read that text without understanding the reality of the tension that's existing between the Apostle Paul and this church that he founded and had spent a year and a half with and now is writing his fourth letter to them. We have two of them recorded in the text of Scripture for us, inspired And we come into a passage where Paul is having to deal with the complexities of leadership with a group of people that don't really want to follow or submit to or obey his leadership at all. And in fact, are actually throwing all kinds of accusations against him, unwarranted accusations. How do you defend yourself 
when people are accusing you, how do you, how do you work through this? There, there are no witnesses here. There, there's not evidence that it seems that it's being implied. People just think evil of Paul because they don't like what he's saying. And they're, they're saying all kinds of wicked things about him. We'll see even more of that develop in the letter to Corinthians. And so how does he start by working through this? I think one of the things that stands out about the church in Corinth is they have an astoundingly warped view of how ministry should happen. They don't understand how to do church. They don't understand how to do ministry for the sake of the kingdom. They certainly don't understand how to do leadership and what it should look like. That shouldn't really surprise us. Uh, 2,000 years removed from Christ, uh, I'd say the American church, we don't do a whole lot better than the disciples did or the Corinthians. Famously, Christ has one interaction with the disciples pointing out their complete lack of understanding of the way you make decisions and leadership in the life of the church. Uh, and, and for kingdom's sake, Luke 22 records this interaction between Jesus and the disciples. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now we read that and, and I think lots of times we come into that moment and, we're, and we, we tend to think of that as just complete arrogance and pride and um, who's going to be ruled, and, in, and it is. Uh, in that sense, we might even think New Testament diatrophies, I want to be the rule. But I think the reality is many, many churches exist with those kinds of personalities in them. They want to be the one in charge. Now, they may not come out and say, I want to be the one in charge, but they communicate it in oh so many ways. I think all the way back to practical pastoral theology classes and being told when I go into a new church as a pastor, the first thing I need to do is I need to find out who the heavy hitters are in the church and befriend them. It's really understanding. That's what they're trying to say is, is get with these guys. And so I think somebody can do that vocally. I think somebody can do that uh, behind the scenes. But I don't think this is very far from us. And, and if we're really honest, if we're really, really honest, I think that temptation resides at least in the heart of all of us. Things would be better if they did things my way, the way I think it should work. And so that's really the dispute that's going on. Verse 25 in Luke 22, Jesus says, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. The ministry leadership then, Jesus is telling us, is radically different than any other kind of leadership. This has actually come into vogue uh, in leadership studies even in the secular world over the last 30 years or so. Uh, this idea of servant leadership has come to the forefront. That's not exclusively a Christian idea at this point uh, in the business world. Lots of people say it should be servant leadership. But what does that look like and how do we understand that? And so frequently when they talk about servant leadership, they go to the text, if it's in Christian circles, Christian writing, they go to the text where Jesus gets up from the Last Supper, Passover, and washes the disciples' feet. And they say, you see, true leadership is servant leadership. Or they go to this text where Jesus plainly says, I'm serving, and that's what a true leader is. Here's the problem with that. Does Jesus never give commands? When they sit at the Last Supper, Jesus has told them, go rent this room, go get the food, go prepare the food so that we can eat there. He gave all kinds of directives. Jesus himself did not go and get the room, buy the food, and prepare it. 
And so if we're thinking, we're suddenly realizing Jesus is the same leader who will get down and wash feet, but he's also the same leader that will give commands and directions. And so frequently when you read uh, secular or Christian literature that talks about servant leadership, they leave out any of the part of Jesus where he uh, delegates and gives directives and commands, and they only focus on Jesus washing feet. And then other literature only focus on this seemingly dictatorial, totalitarian ruler, do as I say, I'm the man. We found it in Christian circles, if you grow up in certain aspects of Christianity, evangelicalism, touch not the Lord's anointed, right? The pastor's always right, you must be always wrong. And it's these ideas where they're trying to import into it. My point with all this is not to answer all the questions of leadership this morning, but simply to point out it's complex. There's a complexity that defies using one text. How do we do ministry and how do we do leadership in the midst of ministry? Well, one of the things that the Lord can do to help to point us, to direct us, is to put us into a crucible, to put us into trials, to put us into suffering. We understand that on a personal level, suffering has a unique way of making you reprioritize. Uh, trials have a unique way of helping you to focus on what's most important and what you should do and where you should go and how you should act. Where should you really give your time, money, and energy, your emotional energy, your spiritual energy, my mental, my thinking? Where should I, uh, what should I be thinking about as I go to sleep? What should be on my mind when I get up? Suffering and trials have a unique way, the fires of them, to focus us. Well, suffering, trials, difficulties, conflict, complexities in the church have a unique way of helping to refine us when we think about leadership and ministry decisions. Our takeaway this morning from uh, Paul's opening statements here to to the Corinthians as he's getting to the letter is that the fires of difficult ministry context can refine our purpose. They can strengthen our resolve to make Christ shown and known. That's really what we're on mission to do. We, We could have boiled it down and said, the fires of difficult ministry help us to realize the best way to glorify God. We're on mission for his glory. We're not on mission to build the biggest buildings, to have the largest budgets, to have the most people. We're not on mission to look successful, sound successful. We're not on mission certainly to be approved of by the world. Ministry is on mission to make Christ shown and known. And it's easy for us to get off track. It's easy for us to not understand how to do that. And so God brings crucibles. He, he, these pots that medieval alchemists used to put metals into and melt them down and put them together intense fires in order to help us to think through it the church at corinth is in is in a crucible and what we have here is a revealing of how is it that paul makes decisions how does paul lead it when we come away from the life of christ We come away with all these principles and truths about leadership. We come away with amazing examples. But we also leave the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with a heart that says, but how exactly does that look in the church? What exactly does it look like to wash feet, but also be willing to say, go get the room? What does it look like? Should should there never be authority? Is that what it means to wash feet? There should never be an authority structure? No one should be giving commands? Uh, does, it, does it look like there's only one guy giving a command? Is it, is it this ancient Israel model? How do we understand it? And so the epistles are supremely helpful to us by showing us, illustrating to us how to work through it. And I think the letter to Corinthians is doing just that, and particularly the section. Now, 
preaching this sermon in the midst of COVID is God's good kindness, but also is really hard because we're in a crucible. We're in a moment where there's a complexity to decision-making and how do we think through it and how do we process through it? What should drive us and guide us? And frankly, opinions are like noses. Everybody has one. But how do we think through it? How do we make these decisions? And where we must start is the authority of the word. And so I think we're served well by God uh, leading us to this. I did not choose 2 Corinthians because of COVID, just like I didn't choose 1 Corinthians when COVID started and we were right at the resurrection at Easter or Ecclesiastes this fall. Or I, I'm not so bright and intelligent that I said, oh, this is going to speak directly into our situation. I think it's just that, quite frankly, the power of the Holy Spirit to use his word to speak into our everyday lives in easy ways. And so as we journey into this with Paul, I want to help us to understand first and foremost the, that this is a conflict case study for us. That we don't have the same exact uh, circumstances. There, there's not a minister that has gone away that's writing back to us about his traveling. So we don't have the same circumstances, so we can use it, though, as a case study. Let me first of all give you just an overview of the way this larger text works so you see what Paul's doing. Uh, you'll see his travel plans, and all of this surrounds whether Paul was coming to Corinth or not coming to Corinth and when he was coming. All of this surrounds his travel plans. It's like travelocity, what's he going to do? What's the next leg of his journey? And, and he really addresses that very specifically from verses 12 through 17. And you'll, you'll notice there's a break and he comes back to it in verses 23 through chapter 2, verse 4. That break in the middle is where he links this to Christ. It's why this is in our Bibles. This passage, all about travel plans, because otherwise we'd say, I mean, why else do we know we need to know exactly what, what Paul's doing? I mean, we don't need to know if, he's, if somebody's taking a bus or plane. That's how are they getting there. This matters because leaders are to image Christ. And the accusations from the Corinthians towards Paul about the shift in his travel plans really becomes an assault on Christ himself. And so Paul needs to help them understand that. And that's that kind of middle break, this parenthetical moment. And then he gets into the reconciliation with them. And he's going to talk about reconciliation with the man that was disciplined out of the church from 1 Corinthians 5. And then his reconciliation. And really it becomes a living illustration of what it looks like to forgive someone and think the best of someone. Which is what they desperately need to do with Paul. It's his way of saying, quite honestly, this is what you need to do without him saying, you need to repent to me. And it's a very gracious way of him driving them there. And so that's really the overview of this whole uh, complex issue. We really need to understand what their complaint is about, though. What is it that the church is irritated about? Uh, you know, almost 2,000 years removed, we trust Paul. We don't trust the church at Corinth. So it would be easy to get into Corinthians and think these are just a bunch of whiny crybabies and they had no grounds, no basis for their arguments or their problems. And so it is important, though, to understand what was going on and some of the particulars so we can understand their complaints. Here's the problem. It's all about Paul's travel. So Paul had plan A. Plan A was this. Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians, look, I'm not going to come to you right now. I'm not traveling to you now, but I'm going to stay here. God's given an effective ministry where I'm at. And so I'm going to wait, and I want to spend more time with you. And so when he writes 1 Corinthians, he sends them this letter. He says, I'm going to make two visits to Corinth, and then you're going to be able to help me, and we'll have ministry together, and I'll have a lengthy time with you. And the Corinthians are excited about that because the Corinthians felt a sense of ownership of Paul uh, and of Apollos, and they really wanted both of them to come and visit. 
And so even when you get, you might remember this is months and months ago, um, but you might remember that Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians even tells them, Paulus doesn't want to come right now either. Paul says that to them because he knows they're going to accuse him of not letting Apollos come. And so they want Paul or Apollos. Paul is telling them, look, I'm not coming right now. I'm going to wait. I'm going to spend some time where I'm at. Then this will give me more time for you. And the Corinthians are like, okay, we know they're not going to be happy about it, ultimately, because they want him to come right now, but okay. And Paul thinks that that's the wisest thing. The problem is Paul switches up, and then he goes to plan B. And so Paul goes ahead and makes a quick visit to them. Uh, it's one he describes as the painful visit. He still plans to fulfill some of the particulars of plan A, though. And so, very simply, he said, look, I, I'm not going to come to you. And then after he sent 1 Corinthians to them, he's thinking about it, and he's like, you know, I could probably work it into my schedule. It'd be a quick trip. Um, but I don't know how they're going to receive this 1 Corinthians letter. I don't know how that's going to go down. And so let me go ahead and make a quick visit to them. So all of a sudden, Paul shows up probably unannounced after he told them I'm not coming. And the, the Corinthians at first are excited about this because that's what they wanted. They wanted Paul to come. And so they probably interpreted this as love and affection. Here he said he couldn't do it, but now he shows up and does it. And, and we've all had that experience, right? We, we've had somebody see the Christmas. Maybe you've been on the side of Paul. Somebody, maybe a parent or grandparent wanted you to come see them at Christmas. You're like, Mom, you know, Mom, Dad, I just, we can't do it. We can't do it. And then all of a sudden you realize you can do it. And so you just you show up. And they're thrilled. They don't get mad at you for showing up. They're excited that you came. That's what they wanted all along. And that's how the Corinthians initially respond. But this visit goes south in a hurry. And it gets real ugly real quick. We don't know how quickly, but it is evidenced by the language Paul uses real fast. We don't know how ugly, but it's ugly enough that Paul routinely calls it the painful visit. It's painful because apparently there is some personal accusations made about Paul in the congregation. It's painful because the congregation doesn't defend Paul. It's kind of like, well, that's his fight, and that's not my fight. I don't agree, but anyway, I don't want to get yelled at either. And so Paul feels abandoned. He feels alone. He's wrestling through accusations. There's guys that he has led to Christ and others that he's done ministry with and he's invested in, and this is how they're responding to him. And so Paul leaves. But when he leaves, the Corinthians still think he's coming back for these two longer visits. They're convinced that he's still going to keep that. It probably, just as you read it, it probably was when he showed up for the quick visit, they were like, Paul, we didn't think you were going to come right away so you could spend more time with us. And at the start of the visit, Paul probably communicated something along the lines of, hey, don't worry, I'm still coming back for the longer visits. Well, by the end of this short time, he's like, I don't think that's going to help. It's not going to help for me to come back for these longer times. And so Paul now goes to plan C. And he writes a letter to them. Now, Paul knows exactly what we know. Typically, most commonly, resolving conflict via, via letters or phone calls or emails or texts is not helpful. Usually, face-to-face -face is far better. But Paul, at this point, realizes face-to-face -face is not working. And it's real ugly. And so Paul writes what he describes as the severe letter to them. And he sends it with Titus. Now, that's really important because one of the things that makes letters difficult to resolve conflict is it's easy for us to read into 
what another person is saying. Their voice, their inflection, their tone, it's easy for us to do that. Paul writing and then sending it with Titus, though, helps to resolve some of that. Because Titus is standing there, and as we pointed out a few weeks ago, Titus seems to be the guy that he sends to tough spots. And so for whatever reason, Titus' spiritual gifting, Titus' personality, Paul knows Titus is going to take this severe letter, he's going to read it to them, and they're going to be able to ask him questions, and he'll be able to answer them as he's, as he's reading this severe letter to them. But part of this communication at this point is, I'm not coming. I'm writing this to you. And I'm dealing with you in a confrontational way. Now, the response to the severe letter by most of them is repentance. But not all of them. And apparently, even some that repented are still struggling with all these shifts in Paul's plans. And they're struggling to such a degree that they begin making accusations about him. And their accusations are that he's wishy-washy, he's weak, he was too scared to come, so that's why he wrote. We can't trust him anymore. He lacks integrity. He's not an honest minister of the gospel. He's selfish in what he does. We can't deal with this guy. And so they're thinking all these things about Paul because he switched his travel plans. Now, we would look at that, and, we would, and I think we would, we would see the totality of the New Testament, and we'd say, really, people, this is what we have to go to? And so the Corinthians are now in this midst of assigning all these evil motives to him, all these struggles that they're having with him. Ultimately, their accusation is that he's in it for himself. Paul makes travel plans, and he does what he does because it's what pleases him. They start to accuse Paul of making all of his decisions for his personal benefit. Their criticism really boils down to he's selfish, and because he's selfish, he's willing to be dishonest. He's willing to say whatever he needs to say to serve him. That's why the accusation is that he's weak and he's cowardly when he's in their presence. Now, he called it a painful visit where he's confrontational. Apparently, the letter was like amped up. Apparently, the letter was minor prophet level confrontation on steroids. But in, his pre- in their presence, he wasn't quite as hardcore about it. Now, I don't think it's actually hard to figure out why that might be. God has called Paul as an apostle, as a minister of the gospel, to not be a brawler, to not be a fighter. Uh, He's called Paul to deal gently with people, to entreat them, to patiently be willing to to teach people. That can be very, 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 very difficult if you're in the immediate presence physically of a person who's yelling at you. Maintaining your cool, um, understanding you need to be patient and meek can be astoundingly difficult. And so Paul is choosing in that moment to probably be more restrained when he's physically in their presence and feels a much greater freedom when he's apart to write this letter. And so they take that and say, well, then that's why he's weak when he's in our presence, but he writes so strongly. He's a scaredy cat. If you want to say it, it's, it's like 14-year-old Steve Johns picking a fight in school. Look, if you've got something to say it, say it to my face. Or don't say it at all. It's that kind of belligerent attitude that they're having towards Paul. And so they're now assigning evil motives about travel plans. And so I think we're prone to wonder, are they justified at all in this thinking? I mean, after all, Paul did change his plans. I just showed you he went from plan A to plan B to plan C. And so he is shifting his plans. But should his change in plans be judged quite this way? Well, bottom line, they're not following the law of love, 1 Corinthians 13. They're not thinking the best of him. They're definitely thinking evil of him. 
Now, how serious is this? Well, let's maybe put it in modern day. It would be a little bit like today after church, you were to ask me, hey, Steve, what are your plans for today? And I would say, you know what? My plan is to go home, uh, grill some pork chops, and maybe watch a little bit of the game later with my kids. You're like, okay, sounds good. Have a, have a wonderful Sunday. And it just so happens that later today, you're driving through a neighborhood and you see me paying a pizza delivery guy at some other members of the church's house. And you're like, wait a minute. Steve told me he was going home to grill pork chops and watch it with his kids. What's he doing at so-and-so's house paying pizza and hanging out over here? And in that moment, what are your options? Well, option A would be, there must have been a change of plans he didn't know about. Option B would be, he lied to me. Maybe he didn't want to hang out with me. He didn't want to spend time with me. That's why he wasn't honest with me. He never knew that I would find out what he was doing. He can't be trusted. That's what we're talking about. What we're not talking about is me saying, I'm going to go home, grill pork chops, watch the game with my kids, and then later today you see me arrested, pulled over by the side of the road for drunk driving because I actually went to the bar and got blasted. Like, that, like that's not what's happening here. And so we have to ask, why? Why on earth with this church that Paul has poured into and he's preached the gospel to and he's discipled and he's sacrificed, why would they be so quick to assign evil motives to changing of his plans and his weakness? And, and I'll be honest with you, I think this is horrifically convicting because I think it's the kind of stuff that any of us are prone to to do. We're tempted to judge the actions and motives of others in ministry, and there's three ways that we can see it in the Corinthians. First of all, when a decision doesn't serve us the way we want to be served. They didn't mind when Paul shifted from plan A to plan B. That didn't bother them. When Paul said, I'm not going to come to you right now so I can make two longer visits, but then he showed up, they weren't mad about that. They didn't accuse him of evil when he just showed up out of the blue. They didn't accuse him of evil when he changed his plans because it served them how they wanted to be served. It made them happy that he showed up. You see, the, re the reality is, as long as we're served the way we want to be served, we don't tend to assign evil motives because we believe this is what's best for me. We tend to operate convinced that we know what's best for us, and then God shows up, right? And he brings things into our lives and circumstances and events and people and relationships and financial struggles and health struggles. And it's like God is shouting from glory, you don't know what's best for you, but I do. We don't go to our children when they're little and say, what do you want to eat? Oh, you want to eat like Buddy the Elf? Yeah, here's more candy and more Smarties and more gummy. You want some gummy worms on your, on your cereal that's already coated in sugar? You know what? You're right. Lucky Charms is not sweet enough. Let's sprinkle some sugar on that mess. Like we don't do that. We don't ask them, how do you want to be served? We serve them in a way that is best for them. And this is the way God is operating. And the Corinthians don't gripe when it matches what they think is best. They only start griping when it cuts against what they want, how they want to be served. And their thinking is at this point, is this really makes it difficult for me to grow. That's how they cast it in their hearts and in their minds and in their accusations. Paul, if you really loved us, you would do this for us because that's how I'm going to grow grace. And that's how we tend to justify. Because if we can make it cast it, this helps me spiritually, then we're let off the leash 
from violating the law of love towards others in our minds, in our hearts. See, see, I'm not doing evil towards them because really all I'm really wanting them to do is what's going to help me grow best. And if they did this differently, that's actually what would help me grow. Secondarily, convinced that this doesn't help them serve best, they know the way in their minds. And so that's what they want to enforce to Paul. It's, it's fascinating because what they didn't gripe about, if you look down in verse 15, Paul is really getting the meat of their argument against them. I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first so you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. They loved that. They wanted that plan because they were convinced that they'd be able to help Paul in his ministry. Hey, we'll be able to give to this. Now we're not going to be able to give to this. See, Paul is robbing me of the way I can do ministry. It's not uncommon in the life of the church, Christianity, that people either, you know, when it comes to service, we want to serve the way we like to serve. And if we find an area where we really like to serve, it's, it's not unusual for people to make it their kingdom, right? This is my kingdom now. Uh, and it can be surrounding programs or particular roles of service. This is my kingdom of being uh, the commander of Awana. I can pick on that one because we don't have Awana, right? This is my, this is my kingdom of, uh, of ushering. This is my kingdom of serving. This is my kingdom of vacuuming. This is my kingdom of instrument. Like, it can be any kind. Of, this is my kingdom of a pulpit. It can be anything where this is mine, and this is what's best for me, and this is how I like to serve. This matches and again, we put it in spiritual terms. This matches my gifting really well, so that's what I should be doing. And they're crazy. Why are they letting somebody else do this? This is what I should be doing. They have no problem when it appeals to what they want to do. The problem is when it's what they don't want to do. They lack the necessary introspection. They don't consider their own hearts. They're certainly not, as they're accusing Paul, Jesus has made it very, very clear that when our hearts are prone and maybe we even see sin in someone else's life, a speck in their eye, what we should be doing is some serious log harvesting out of our own face. He says, before you go to someone about the splinter in their eye, consider the tree that's extending out of your face first. When our hearts are prone, so whether it's real sin or even we're perceiving this about someone, can I just call us what Jesus is saying is humbly consider your heart first. They don't do that. They skip right by that. And we have to ask, how do Christians do that? How do we so easily fly by? Because we have to put it in spiritual terms. You know what? Paul lacks integrity. This is about being honest. And, and, and he's not honest, and we need to call him to it. Do you know what this is about? This is about serving Jesus. And this is about me needing to grow. And if Paul would have done this, that would have helped me grow. You know why I'm upset? I'm upset because Paul's doing things that are keeping me from growing to be like Jesus. As though anyone on this planet can do something to keep you from becoming like Jesus. There is someone. That's your flesh and my flesh. <laughs> the reality is, what you can't stop me from doing is in the power of the Spirit becoming more sanctified. Yet we're so prone to accuse others of this. You are hindering my growth. Really? 
Was Daniel's growth hindered? Was David's growth hindered when he's running from Saul? Was Christ hindered? As he learned obedience, which means his obedience was perfectly revealed through suffering? The Corinthians are unwilling to consider in this ministry context their own hearts. They're unwilling to do some forestry work of the log in their own eyes. Instead, their focus is all about what Paul should do and why he should do that. We are all tempted in complex ministry situations to believe the answer to our frustration is if somebody else would change. Crucibles, crucibles are those pots that are used by these medieval alchemists. They're, they're actually trying to find gold or create gold and so uh, and variety of other kinds of health issues. So let's put all these metals in this pot and we're going to boil it up and then it's going to be purified and then we're going to be able to deal with it in crucibles. Ministry, complex ministry conflicts are crucibles to teach us. One Harvard article, business article, put it this way. The skills required to conquer adversity and emerge stronger and more committed than ever are the same ones that make for extraordinary leaders. You are not a good leader because you can float a raft across a lake that looks like the surface of a mirror. Good leaders are the ones that know how to navigate rapids and come through the other side. And in the seasons of your leadership in your homes, in your businesses, uh, presence in the life of the church, the way God will refine you is through crucibles. He will put you and me in difficult situations, and he will use those situations to teach us the skills necessary. Our church has gone through an extraordinary season this past year. The test of good leadership in this church is not how you manage blossoming budgets, but how you manage shrinking budgets. That's where good leaders are made. It's not how you manage when everything looks wonderful. It's how you manage when the optics are bad, but steady, faithful stewardship is what is happening. It is not how you manage your homes when everything seems joyous. It's how you direct your homes to the heart of the gospel and the depth of God's truth because life is hard and your answer is found in Christ. That's what makes good leaders. Listen, we are all afraid when things get difficult. That's normal. That's nothing to be ashamed of. Trials are painful. Suffering hurts. But we must also remember our answer cannot be to respond like the Corinthians. COVID isn't over. Our church is not back to what we'd all want and crave so deeply in any kind of sense of normalcy at all. And yet by God's grace, ministry has happened. Relationships have persevered. Discipleship has persisted. The word has gone forth. God has been glorified. People have been blessed. Daniel learned through the crucible of losing his parents, being horrifically assaulted, commanded to do evil things, making godly appeals. There were crucibles that prepared Daniel to be the leader that he becomes. David faces a lion and a bear. There are crucibles to prepare him to walk into facing a giant. Peter 
through his own failures, faces a crucible, goes back to the fishing boat, and he learns in that moment the weakness of his own faith that when the going gets tough, Peter's bent is to get out of Dodge. And then Jesus shows up and makes him breakfast and calls him back with a renewed focus to what he's called him to do. I think in the crucibles of complex ministry situations, there's a lot that we can learn about followership, following other leaders, following Christ. The fires of difficult ministry context can refine our purpose and strengthen our resolve to make Christ shown and known. With that, then, we can look at the leadership side of the case study. Paul's love for the Corinthians is on full display in these verses. He talks about the pain of the previous visit. He talks about the desire that he has for their joy and for his joy. He talks in defensive language about the criticisms he's receiving. He has this deep desire to be reconciled to the Corinthians. This puts him at serious risk. Whenever we want to really be reconciled, so there's a a conflict, and we really want to get back together with somebody, we want the friendship to be renewed, we want the situation to be resolved, in that moment, it is both a wonderful opportunity and an incredible temptation, because we are tempted to want to say and do whatever it takes to have unity again. Some of us, just personality type, spiritual gifts, what have you, some of us are more prone in that moment to be willing to say or do anything. Maybe we wrestle with fear of man in a more intense way. Maybe this relationship is an idol to us and we can't stand losing it. And so so we'll, we'll agree to whatever they say just to get rid of the conflict. We become people pleasers just to resolve the situation. If this is what they want, then that's what we'll do because I'm afraid of them getting mad. I'm afraid of the distance and the difficulty. Why shouldn't Paul start people pleasing? Why not do whatever it takes to make everyone happy? Why not follow that advice that I got in this pastoral theology class 20 plus years ago, find the heavy hitters and make them happy. Or in a leadership book that I read this past spring, pastors should always find out who gives the most of their church so that they can express deep gratitude to them and maintain relationships to them because that's who God is using to keep the church afloat. I, I kid you not. I sat through one leadership class, we read through a series of case studies, then we all had to present case studies, and, and one guy presented a case study, and his church is just rough, man. It's, they got some situations going on in their mess. Um, he's got one gentleman, he runs their technological, technology crew and live stream and stuff, and their live stream, their church is like easily probably like five times the size of our church. And their live stream is rough, folks, man. Like, it's breaking in and out, and the screen is glitching, the audio is really bad. And um, this dear brother logged in and watched ours. And, and he and our, our, our crew does just does an amazing job and so thankful for them. And he's like, how is it like, so he went to this dear, this dear brother. He's a Vietnam vet and um, retired military, pretty hard-nosed kind of guy. And uh, he said, brother, is there some way we could get some equipment to make this better? We could do this better? And the guy looked at him and he says, look, this is as good as it gets. You just need to get used to it. Okay. So this is part of his case study. So what does he do? So some guys are like, oh, you should go back and have a discipleship conversation. You should go back and have a confrontational discipleship conversation. You should start getting together with this brother on a monthly basis just to build relational depth and care for his soul. You should enter into his world. Maybe there's some things going on you don't understand. There's at least a military background. Maybe you could just hear from him first and then try to speak into it. But the sake of the ministry and the gospel is important enough to deal with it. And then there was a guy in our class that advised this. You just need to just can him. (laughs) And whatever you lose, you lose. 
And on the other extreme, there was a guy that said, just let it go. Just trust God for bad live stream. It's not worth the conflict at all. Just avoid it. It's more important that you keep him and any of his friends happy. As a matter of fact, you should probably go back and apologize for even asking about it. I don't know what our dear brother did. <laughs> but I tell you that because that's the temptation Paul's now facing. How do I deal with this conflict? And what we get from Paul is a master class on how to stay the course and do what you're supposed to do. Now, it's even hard to say that. It's hard to say stay the course and be persistent. Because sometimes we run into leadership moments where somebody is sinfully persistent. They're, they're proud and they're proud. We'll get that word out. They're proud. How do I conjugate that in the middle of the sentence? They're proud and um, this is what they're going to do. So we have Saul, right? We have Saul-level persistence. We read the Bible and we're like, Saul's wrong. He's a terrible leader. But he keeps going. And so there's times we know leadership should make different decisions. They should be open to change. But then we get to Jesus, and Peter's like, Jesus, we should go to Jerusalem. Get the behind me, Satan. We have a humble persistence. So it's, again, there's a complexity. How do we know when to be persistent and say, this is what we're doing, and we're going to keep doing it, and when to say, this is what we've been doing, maybe we should change? How do we know that? And Paul's example to us gives us some answers to that. And so this becomes a flow chart. When you think about your homes, your, the way you even work in the secular business world, because God is calling you to work out his glory as gardeners in the world, or whether it's in the life of the leadership of the church and decisions that get made, you, Paul gives us ways to think through it. First of all, this. This is a guiding point. Be ruled by God, not by people. Verse 12, Paul says this. Our boast is this. The testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand. Just so you know, that is a little bit of a side jab. Way back in 1 Corinthians, he wrote to them about disciplining the guy out of the church that's sleeping with his um, stepmother. And he'd already written them or told them about this guy before. And the Corinthians basically said, we're not sure what you want us to do with this guy. And so Paul's like, folks, it wasn't like I wasn't clear. When we are thinking evil of people, we always misread the content of their communication. Always. And that's part of what, that's part of what Paul's saying here. I actually write really clear. You're not understanding because you've got a you problem, not a me problem. Just as you did partially understand us. So he said, at least you got some of this. That on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first. So you might have a second experience of grace. Paul has taught them a lot about the conscience. And that's where he first, he makes a, a series of appeals. But he's taught them a lot about the conscience. The conscience of the believers to be biblically ruled, biblically informed. Your conscience and my conscience is God's part of our makeup. It's our imago Dei. It's our creative design. It's part of our um, immaterial being. Our conscience tells us, gives us a sense of what is right and wrong. Our consciences, though can be misinformed, right? So you have people in their consciences in Romans and in Corinthians that thought any kind of drinking was evil 
any kind. Um, uh, they thought eating meat offered to idols was evil. They, they, the, some of them are still like, bacon is bad. That's how we know they were wrong. Um, and, and, you know, so it's like all this. So we get to modern day church, right? Movies is evil. Beach is evil. Um, the Great Mouse House in Orlando is evil. You know, just, we all got lists, right? This is, here's your music list. Here's your movie list. Here's your, like, this is evil, right? Their conscience is something. If we think the best about these people, they have consciences that have been informed in a particular way Tattoos is bad, right? So, so the consciences, and Paul tells us your conscience can be wrong. So let your conscience be ruled by Scripture. And so you may choose. I'm never going to get a tattoo. I'm never going to go to the mouse house. I'm never going to. I don't. It, Paul's like, I don't really care. Just so as long as your conscience is biblically informed, and you maybe choose not to do some of those things because of your particular flesh bents, just don't make a law for everyone else. So the conscience is to be biblically informed. So when your conscience rises up and says, "Oh, I shouldn't do that," it's the word. Paul is telling us this, his conscience, and this is also harking back to 1 Corinthians 4, my conscience, he says, like basically saying, I know I didn't lie to you. I know I didn't. Like you can accuse me all day long. God knows I didn't lie to you. But his conscience is not enough. And he tells us that also in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, I'm going to stand before God one day in judgment. Because Paul knows this, lots of times you and I can be convinced we've done nothing wrong, and we're still wrong. And so Paul gives greater evidence. He doesn't just stop at the conscience. He says, I have a pattern of frank integrity with you. And that's what he says. We behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so to you. For we were not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. That word there, godly sincerity, means a holy frankness. It would be like you looking at somebody and saying, when exactly have I beat around the bush with you? In other words, have you ever worked with somebody before, maybe relationally, and they're a hinter, right? They like to give hints, and then they get mad if you don't pick up their hints, right? I'm not, I'm not a big hint kind of guy, right? And, and so I love just frank speech. Now, to be honest with you, I'm a little bit tender heart, right? So, so speak some truth and love. But I really just say it. I mean, don't hint to it. Don't beat around the bush at it. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, look, I was there 18 months. Am I a beat around the bush kind of guy? Am I normally known for insinuating but not speaking? Paul is saying, no, you know this about me. He is appealing to his track record with them. Paul says that I've operated in holiness, sincerity, simplicity when I've dealt with you. He says, my conscience reveals that I know I stand before God. Paul doesn't say this lightly. He says, I know I haven't done wrong, and I will answer to God for it. Paul says, you know I have a track record of dealing with you with frank honesty and integrity. You know this about me. And then when he appeals that he does it by, by God's grace and not earthly wisdom, he's telling them, I don't have a track record of doing whatever makes people happy. I don't go after the political worldly wisdom method. I go after God's wisdom method. All of this is telling us whenever you get into ministry complexity, the first waypoint, first anchor point, sink it down in the ground, drive it down to the bedrock is this, are you being ruled by God or by people? And they're not the same thing. Well, this is what so-and-so wants. This is what so-and-so thinks we should do. This is what I think we should do. This is what Paul, this is where we think you should go. Paul, you should never have said this. You shouldn't have written this. You should have done this. Real easy to loft those bombs. Paul is way over here thinking this. What does God want me to do? 
God's leaders come out of crucibles convinced that they will be ruled by the word, not by people. Parents need this all the time. Look, you go to do family worship, you come to church and you hear pastors talk about family worship. We should have family worship, family devotion. Here's some ideas, here's some guys. You go to do family worship and it's like you're telling your kid to quit picking their nose the whole time, quit pinching their sister, sit up, pay attention, put away your, your iPhone. Pay and you're like, this is torture. This is torture. You go, and I remember growing up um, in my home, like church was, like we were always at church, right? Doors were open, we were there. And I remember Sunday afternoons, though, my, my parents would be down for a nap. And like, I don't know, once or twice, once or twice, it so happened that they overslept past that Sunday afternoon nap because they're dead tired trying to raise four boys. And we didn't make it to church. Well, my little carnal heart, you know, four o'clock would roll around, and suddenly you'd think that our house is an isolation chamber, right? Like it gets as quiet as possible. We're not playing Legos because you can't root for Legos without waking somebody up. G.I. Joe is put away. Like I'm just calmly reading a book reading a book, just hoping they oversleep so we don't have to go to church, right? So then mom and dad are suddenly like, hey, it's church time. We're like, oh, you woke them up. My brother and I actually got in fights at times about who woke up mom and dad. You know, we were so godly. It's hard to be a leader to choose what's best, and that's not what the people want. But Paul remembers this, you don't answer to people. When you go to your secular workplace this week and you have to make decisions, even in a secular work world, that honor and glorify God, you don't answer to the customer. If it's a question of integrity, you don't answer to the people. You answer to God. And crucibles teach you that. Crucibles have a way of forcing you to consider, who am I pleasing in this decision? Secondarily, he seeks their best and not his own. Their best and not his own. Verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul was on mission to do what was best for them, not for himself. If Paul had chosen what was best for him, he wouldn't have gone back to Corinth in the first place, let alone, let alone write this severe letter to them. Paul would have said, I'm done with this mess. Forget it. But everything he does, they're judging evil. They're no different from us. They, they could easily say, oh, here's Titus with a letter. I guess Paul couldn't come see us again in person. He knows that in-person reconciliation is best, and yet here's the letter. What do you got for us, Titus? You think people don't operate that way? You get into situations of conflict where everything you do is judged. So how do you function? Seek their best and not yours. Paul says, I chose this method because it was best for you. This is what basically Paul's saying in not so many words. If I had come a second time, I was going to light up your mess. And so it was better that I wrote it 
and sent it with Titus. Because if I had come in person, it was going to be on, right? That's what he's telling them. I didn't write to you because I was afraid of you. I write to you because this is what was the best way for you. And what's fascinating is as he's writing 2 Corinthians, it worked. It worked. The majority of them repented. The majority of them heard the words of Paul through Titus. The Holy Spirit worked and they softened and they repented and they responded right to Paul. Paul's writing 2 Corinthians because it worked. And so it gives an immense defensibility for Paul to say, I did what was best for you, not what was best for me. Paul's open and transparent about the pain that this caused him to write the letter. The anguish, the hurt, the anxiety, the tears. Fair warning here. We all think we know what's best for us. We don't like the hard things that God brings into our lives, let alone hard things that seem to come to us through some human authority. Our human authorities that God has put over us, they make decisions. We don't like them. We're convinced it's not best for us, and so we're tempted to rail against them. Spiritual authorities need to take seriously that they will give an account to God, whether it's fathers or or mothers, whether it's pastors or, or deacons, whether it's political leaders, whether it's policemen, they need to take seriously the fact that they will answer to God. Difficult ministry context has a crucible effect that is unique in calling you to question if you're really loving the people you're leading or if you're leading them because you love you. It's when pastors find their identity in being a pastor. It becomes more about them than it does about the flock. You can think back to Ezekiel and Jeremiah as the false teachers, the hirelings, kill the sheep to clothe themselves in their wool and to eat their meat. It's when moms and dads rule by anger and frustration and intimidation. It's when politicians seek to just line their pockets and carry, instead of caring for the people they're called to represent. It's when some policemen overstep their bounds. It's when any human authority, in that moment, it's conflict, it's complex. Who am I going to protect? And leaders are not in it for themselves. They must seek the best of those they are called to lead and not their own. Crucibles call you to that. They uniquely call you to that. (laughs) one One of the bits of counsel I always give to new dads. And I rejoice at the new fathers in our church seeing how they love their wives and their children. But I've told them, look, young couples will fight this fight one way or the other. So a new baby happens, and that baby every two, three hours, four hours is screaming, crying, wanting to get up and be fed. And I said, you're, da- you're going to be tempted. I'd look at that. So you're going to be tempted to think that's her job. Maybe if she's nursing in particular, what am I going to do? And we always look at them and say, it's your job. You get up, pick up that baby. Give it to the mom. When she's done feeding the baby or nursing the baby, if that's what she's doing, if there's ways that you can even help with the bottle, do that. And then you change that baby and put it back down. But i got to go to work the next day. You're not in it for you. You live to serve them. When it's hard, that's when it will really come out. Who are we in this for? Then thirdly, thirdly, Paul is all about showing Christ and not himself. The whole reason this is here is because of that parenthetical moment 
in the middle of it. He leads up to it in verses 15 down through 22. Why did I do this? And I really should say 18 through 22. So let me read that section again. He's passionate about this. He's defending his travelocity plans, not because he cares, but because he knows ultimately, listen to me now, look up here, not, not your Bibles yet, just yet. When we wrongly, because sometimes our leaders do lack integrity, but when we wrongly assign evil motives to leaders, we take a shot at Christ. Not because they are Jesus, but because he's put them in that spot. So whether that's parents, whether that can even be political leaders, God has put in the position, uh, as church leaders, in this context, in a church leaders, when we are assigning evil motives and we are doubting integrity and honesty, and Paul isn't wrong here, ultimately Paul knows this, we will stop trusting Jesus. So he goes through all this, not ultimately because Paul cares what they think of him, but because he knows it will destroy their confidence in the Lord. So he puts it this way. Verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Why is he writing all these things? Get all the way down to the end of chapter two. So you see this bigger picture. He says this, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Listen, the reality is this. If you know me to be a liar outside of this pulpit, then nothing I say in this pulpit matters. That's what Paul is saying. And it doesn't mean that, that a preacher never sins, that a pastor never sins. Like, it doesn't mean any of that at all. But Paul understands this. If they keep on this course of judging his integrity wrongly, of judging his motives to be evil, his decisions to be evil, this doesn't serve us best. This isn't for us. He's in it for himself. Paul knows this. Eventually, they are going to doubt even the core of the gospel itself because the gospel message comes through people. It comes through broken vessels. It comes through weak and infirm and cracked vessels, but it's the gospel that must come forth. The crucible of a difficult ministry context has only purified this resolve of Paul that he is on mission to show Jesus to those that follow his leadership. The fires of difficult ministry contexts, they can refine our purpose and strengthen our resolve to make Christ shown and known. I don't think it's any mystery that our church spent time in Romans and 1 Corinthians and love and affection and trials and difficulties and preferring others above ourselves before we went into COVID. I think God was preparing our church for this crucible. I rejoice in so many ways where I see our church recognizing that reality and loving one another. But we're in 2 Corinthians and I want to call us to that. That even as trials persist and as fires go on for a long time, we can easily wane. And I want to call us away from waning, but instead continue our resolve that we will be ruled by God and not by people. We will seek the best of others and not what's best for me. And we will seek to show Christ 
and not ourselves, and to realize this crucible can continue to do that good work in us 